I'm Skeet, the senior pastor here. It's my pleasure to open the Bible with you today. I want to encourage you, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, one, we will put the scriptures up on the screen, uh, but there is a Bible at the end of each row. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, then you can take that home. It's our gift to you. Our security team uh, won't hassle you or tackle you on the way out if you leave with it. Uh, Interestingly, uh, the most... uh, sold book in the history of the world is the Bible. It is also, year in and year out, the most frequently shoplifted book, uh, which is always kind of confusing, considering in the first quarter of the book, it's going to tell you not to steal. Uh, But nonetheless, today, you don't even have to sneak out with it. It's a gift. So uh, please take that with you. I want to invite you uh, to open your Bibles. Uh, We're going to be uh, starting in 1 Peter chapter 1, and then we'll uh, land in Jeremiah 29 and camp out there for a bit. If you are a, a Christian or you've been around uh, Christian culture uh, for much of your life, you've probably seen at least one of the verses from Jeremiah 29 uh, because verse 11 is very popular because in it, uh, God proclaims that he knows the plans he has for his people, plans to prosper them and bless them. And what we want to do is really dig into the fullness of what God is saying to his people with hopes that it will guide and direct us and help us to live faithfully as we wait for God to do what it is he's going to do in the future. And so we have jumped into this series called A Letter to the Exiles. And the reason we've called it that is Jeremiah chapter 29 is that. It's a letter from God uh, through the prophet Jeremiah to the people of Judah as they found themselves in exile in Babylon. And so if you're going to set this up, you need to understand that the people of Judah lived in the area surrounding Jerusalem and really for generations had not been consistently faithful to God. And God had told them that if they were to turn away from him, that he would remove his hand of blessing and protection from them. And that he would allow the other nations to come in and conquer them. And, and after a while, God began to just kind of step back and let them have the consequences of consistent disobedience to his commands. And so the people of Babylon, under a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, end up conquering and taking over the people of Judah. And so that's where they, they find themselves. They've entered into exile. Now, exile is an interesting word to describe what the people of God experience. Because when you say that a people are exiled, it means that they're outside of their homeland. And more than that, they found themselves embedded in a new community where they are outsiders. Where the way of life to them is odd and the belief system is at odds with theirs. Where not only are they somewhat foreign in the community that they live in, they have a different set of values and belief systems that put them in conflict and in opposition at times to the world surrounding them. Because of that, exiles are people who live with a constant awareness that they're not home, even if they have set up and established homes for themselves. Now, the people of Judah were obviously exiles there in Babylon, but the scriptures in First Peter are going to tell us that the church kind of always exists as a people of exile. And you'll see this in First Peter chapter 1, in the first couple of verses as Peter begins the letter and how he addresses it. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's who he is, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. So Peter writes this letter to believers and his term for them is that they are chosen or elect exiles. It says this was all according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ who for the sprinkling with his blood 
May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And so a few things I just want you to see is that this season of exile for the church, this experience of being somehow away from home, even if you're in your own hometown, is not new for the church. This has been really from the beginning that the experience of believers has been. It's been to having been changed by God and awaiting the return of Christ, having embraced citizenship of heaven, that home doesn't feel at home anymore. And what we learn just in those few verses is is that this exile is somehow by design of God's choosing. And it's not a result of disobedience for the church. See, for the people of Judah, they're being removed and and put into Babylon was a direct consequence of their disobedience. But but for the church, this experience of being home but not at home isn't because of disobedience. It's because of God's plan. And actually for us in 1 Peter chapter 2, the scriptures will give us a bit of what that plan is and God's expectations for his people in chapter 2 verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so Peter just kind of lays out this simple ethic for living as a people of exile. He says, Your conduct, your way of life, surrounded by people who don't know your God, should be so pure and speak so clearly of the nature of God that anyone who would speak ill of the church would obviously be lying and that some would be drawn to Christ so that they would rejoice on the day that he comes. The Apostle Paul would say it this way, that our citizenship is in heaven and we await our Savior from there. Now the question that the church is wrestling with today And the question that the people wrestled with in the time of Jeremiah is the question of how long we await for our Redeemer. If we're waiting for Him to come and rescue and redeem and restore, the thing we've got to wrestle with is, is this a short wait or is this something that's going to take a while? And what I want us to look at is God's word to the people through the prophet Jeremiah. After the wheels have come off and everything's fallen apart, And I believe as we ask and wrestle with that question, how long the words of God to the people in Jeremiah 29 are going to be quite helpful for us. And so I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to read verses 4 through 6 as the letter to the exiles kicks off. We begin with this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And I want to pause there, and we're going to pick up in a second. A few things we see, we're reminded that this exile is by design, that God has done this. He has placed the people there. So this difficult season is not accidental. This difficult season is not the enemy walking in victory. It is the providential work of God in a way that is just difficult, but is nonetheless His work. And then we get something Unique, And so what I want you to do is for a moment to imagine that you're the original recipients of this letter, receiving it for the first time. Because one of the things we need to remember when we read the Bible, particularly the letters, is that we're reading someone else's mail. This, we're not the original recipients. Now, God recognized the value of having his word preserved for us, and so he's kept it, and we're to read it and to be blessed by it. But we have to remember that we're not the original audience. The original audience is a group of people 
who had lived their entire lives up until recently in Jerusalem. They were not just some people from Jerusalem. They were leaders, noble people, skilled craftsmen, and the educated group from the city that had been taken there to Babylon. They had been captured as their city was sieged and they had been mocked and ridiculed as their captors tormented them on their way to the enemy's city and they find themselves and God has finally through the prophet prophet Jeremiah after we don't know how long come with a word to his people and he begins it with an interesting phrase he refers to himself as the Lord of hosts so if you're hearing this in real time and you've never heard this before and you're wondering what God has to say through his prophet and he begins saying a word from the Lord of hosts this gives you an interesting image and kind of might set an expectation of what it is that God's going to do because the phrase the Lord of hosts is an imagery of God as the ruler and king over the armies of heaven and we don't necessarily get that the way we use the word host is is the person who seats you at the restaurant so the Lord of hosts doesn't sound real impressive but when you're an ancient Jewish person the Lord of hosts is to speak of just platoons and squadrons and divisions of soldiers, of angels who respond to his command. So, so if I'm kind of tracking here, and I know that we've just been conquered, and we've been drugged into exile, and God comes speaking as the Lord of hosts, the God who rules over the armies of heaven, all of a sudden I've got an expectation that God's about to do something. But what God tells them next is not consistent with what many of them expected. He continues the letter in verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. In these first few words of the letter, there's a basic truth that God is communicating and that is that the exile was by design, that God had sent them there and He gives them three specific commands that He wants them to follow as they set up shop in Babylon. The, the first is this, to build houses. The second is to plant gardens. And the third is to enjoy the blessings of your family. So these are significant because as we think through them, they kind of set the tenor for the answer to the question, how long? So God tells them, I want you to build houses. I want you to become established there in Babylon. You see, if this was going to be a temporary thing, God wouldn't tell them to build houses. He'd say, look, uh, set up some tents. And just hang tight for a bit. Because I've got a plan and the wheels are moving. And this is, this is going to be quick. So, so don't worry about building the house. You're not even going to get to live in it very long. Uh, just, just, just hang tight. And, and, and if this was going to be a short stay, God wouldn't say, uh, plant gardens. So you can eat the produce. You might get something like, guys, you, you remember uh, during the Exodus when Moses led you, I dropped manna, just bread from heaven on the ground every morning. This is going to be round two of that. So you guys, hey, don't worry about the garden thing because this is a short stay. I'm just going to, I'm going to start bringing you guys food every morning with the dew. You collect that, you put it in a bowl, you're going to be fine. Um, that's not what he says. 
And then he tells them, hey, you know, if someone's getting married, let's go ahead and do it. Don't wait thinking you're going to go back to Jerusalem because you've already booked the venue and you want to get your deposit back. That's not going to happen. You're not going back anytime soon. So if there's a wedding that needs to happen, it's going to happen here in Babylon because you're not going home. So these three commands, uh, build houses, plant gardens, have weddings, have children and grandchildren. Embedded in all of these commands is a simple reality. This is going to last. This difficult season of exile, this discomfort that you're feeling, this longing for home, this isn't going to be over quickly. So I want you guys to get set up in the land. I want you to build houses to live in. I want you uh, to plant gardens and enjoy the fruits of your labors. I want you to enjoy your family, have weddings and celebrate them and have children and grandchildren and be established and grow here because this is going to last a while. And with that, I believe their expectations are shattered. I believe that many of them thought that God was going to quickly reverse course, defeat the Babylonians, and bring them home. And I think hearing a word from the Lord of hosts was kind of something they expected. And so they look at the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11, where God says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And they kind of think now we're at the McDonald's counter, and I'll take two, and quickly please. But that's not the answer that God has come to give to them when they ask themselves how long. Other people, it seems, had been giving them a false answer to that question. You'll see it in Jeremiah 29, verse 8, with this warning. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. Because apparently, some people had been misleading them. And in the context, it seems that the misleading statement was God's going to come to our rescue pretty quickly. But God comes and says, this is going to take a while. You're going to sit in this exile for an extended season. Now, that's a difficult message to receive. It's one thing to know that you're going to go through a season of hardship and difficulty. It's another thing to be told, this is going to be long. Like whatever, whatever you're struggling with, for God to say, it's not going away. Because when we read that and we hear the promise of Jeremiah 29, we're kind of thinking, God's going to fix things. He's just going to sort it out. And this, this isn't going to take too long. This is going to be easy. That's why I like the idea of, of the gym. Well, I say I like the idea of the gym. I don't like the gym, right? In fact, I try to avoid the gym because I have seen ambulances there, which leads me to believe that going there elevates your risk of heart attack. So I'm avoiding that place because I'd like to live longer. But I like the idea of the gym. You see, my dad and my grandfather, they didn't go to the gym because they worked hard with their hands all day. Uh, for Since we started drilling oil in America, that, that's what my family has done. And, and we weren't engineers, and we, you know, we didn't get to go to the offices in the city. We, we had names on our shirts. That's what my family did. And we drilled 
oil well. So, so they didn't have the luxury of the gym because it was hard labor all day your whole life. Now we go to the gym. And the good thing about the gym is that there's a start point and an end point to the physical hardship. We determine when that is even. So it's not just that it starts and finishes, but we get to schedule it. So I can handle that kind of hardship. You know, the one that I get to fit into my schedule at the appropriate time when I want to do it. And then we get crazy stuff like seven-minute abs. Because we'd really like to, I guess, have a ripped set of abs, but only if it's a maximum of seven minutes a day to accomplish it. And so we've gotten into this thing in our comfort that we actually even schedule our discomfort. And God says on on the real stuff, on the big things, you don't get to determine this. And so the message of the people of Israel is this is going to be a lengthy season of exile, a lengthy season of difficulty. But even in this difficult message that God gives them, you see these really subtle, simple blessings that God gives his people. He says, this is going to take a while, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to build houses and live in them. There's going to be an opportunity for stability for you. For you to set up somewhere and to establish a life and to be blessed in the midst of that. God tells them to build homes and live in them because He is offering them the opportunity to live in the homes that they have built, not in fear of someone coming and taking it from them or displacing them, but under some safety and security, even though it's provided by the Babylonians. He's going to give them the opportunity to prosper and enjoy the fruits of their labor. And so he says, plant gardens and enjoy it. Work, till the soil, produce things and enjoy the blessings of your hard work. Yes, I know this is a season of exile and I know the Babylonians have forced you to live here, but you can be blessed, you can prosper there. And I think most significantly in in the command to have weddings and to celebrate children, you see God's giving them the opportunity to enjoy the blessings of children and grandchildren. The blessing of sons and daughters and sons-in-law and daughters-in-law. And there's just tremendous blessing there because God had given them this promise. You go all the way back to Genesis. Man is commissioned by God to fill the earth and subdue it and to multiply God's image upon the earth. And in sin, we turn from God and God still is faithful and says, I'm still going to give you that blessing. And then he calls this man Abraham. And he says, from you, Abraham, I'm going to make this great nation. And that promise is given to Abraham, a man who is uh, old and his body has just died and withered. And his wife is barren. And yet in God's mercy, they have a child. And from that child, uh, a nation emerges and multiplies. A nation that multiplies even under the hardship of Egyptian slavery. And here again, in exile, God says, I'm going to bless you. You're going to multiply You're going to have children. You're going to enjoy your children. You're going to see your grandchildren. You're going to have feasts and celebrations at weddings where you'll remember that I'm good to you. And all of that is going to happen in this season of exile. One of the things that's so interesting about our walk with God is that God at the same time may plant us in a season of difficulty and hardship and pour out His blessings on us in the midst of that. So that it's not all or nothing. It's not God is opposed to us and things are horrible, but rather God has placed us in this difficult moment, and even in this difficulty, there is cause for rejoicing and celebration. Exile can be a place of rejoicing. 
Exile can be a place of blessing. So I want you to imagine this. The the community of people from Judah planted there in the great city of Babylon. Gathering together and celebrating with feasts at weddings. Because the wedding celebration is bigger than the wedding celebration. It's a celebration of God continuing His promise to Abraham that they would be able to expand and increase in number and that their number would be blessed and that they would become a great nation even in the midst of opposition. We know from the New Testament that the wedding imagery is even deeper than the relationship of a man and a woman. That it's intended to depict God's care and provision for His people. And so that the husband in in this role is to protect and provide in the same way that God protects and provides for His people. And that the wife is to follow her husband in joyful submission as the people of God are to follow God in joyful submission. So when we talk about the role and the covenant of marriage, of, of the husband protecting and providing, and the wife in joyful submission, this is bigger than them. It's a conversation about God and His love for His people. And when we celebrate the wedding, we celebrate more than these two people finding each other and all of that. We're celebrating something bigger about a God who found us, who protects and provides and redeems if we will just seek Him. And so when we get all of that together, they're celebrating this wedding in the midst of Babylon. People don't know anything of the God they serve. And they celebrate His faithfulness. They celebrate that even in exile, God provides. And so this season of blessing can also become a powerful witness as the people of God embrace God's blessings even in difficulty. But I can tell you this, is that if the people of God had chosen to reject his commands. And rather than celebrating and rejoicing the simple blessings of life that he gave them, and they had given in to anger and bitterness and fear, they would have had zero impact on the community around them. No one is magnetically drawn to angry, fearful, bitter people. And so he's told them, I've got you. Celebrate my gentle blessings in the midst of hardship. And let me work in you. And what you'll find when you look through this season of exile is that in ways that no one expected, God's hand was at work while the people walked through this difficult season. That God was orchestrating global events in such a way that the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11 to establish them and restore them and give them a hope and a prosperity was shaking out far before they recognized. We have in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 8, this promise that God says, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord, who are called according to His purpose. And so for those who believe in Jesus, the Scriptures say all things work together for good. It's important also to note that the Scriptures don't say that all things are good. Some things are just plain bad. And in the midst of that, the Scriptures promise that somehow God works all of that to result in our good. That God is good to us in spite of the fallen world around us. God is good to us in spite of our own sin and the sins of others and the carnage that they bring. God is good and somehow in the midst of all of this, His hand is at work in ways we don't see shaping things in the end for our good. So we can look back on the season of exile for Judah and we can tell you what happened. And and I can show you just a few things that I think are amazing that demonstrates God's hand at work 
in this season. One of the people that was deported when the people were taken out of Jerusalem to Babylon was a man named Daniel. He also had three friends. You may know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their given names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but that's not what made it into the press release. So you didn't hear that probably. Uh, Now, these guys, God uses in a great way in Babylon. There's a season, Daniel being a servant of the king with a high position, people came opposed to him and they wanted to pass a law that that said no one could pray to anyone but the king for an entire month. And Daniel, as a faithful follower of God, said, can't do that. I love what Daniel does in response. He doesn't stage a rally where he protests. He just goes about his life serving God. And so he gathers in private, facing Jerusalem three times a day, as was his custom, and he continues to pray to God. Well, the word gets out, and the king has given a, a, a command that anyone who breaks that should be thrown into a lion's den to be killed by the lions. And so the king, though he dreads it, has to do this to Daniel. He throws Daniel in, and the next morning he runs out to see if God had saved him, and he finds Daniel safe and sound. And all who hear wonder of the might of the God who closes the mouth of the lion. At another point, uh, they build this huge statue and demand that everyone worship this image as their God. And, And Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refuse to. And they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And the king is angry. And he stokes the flames some more, just for good measure. And they are kept safe. And the witnesses observed a fourth man, like the Son of Man, who protected them and shielded them in the midst of the fire. At another moment, Nebuchadnezzar the king, who was proud and arrogant, was humbled by God. And in Daniel chapter 4, his story is told. God took from him his sanity, and for a season of time, he lived as an animal in the wild. Until God restored him. And having been restored and humbled by God, Nebuchadnezzar says these words in response in verse 34 of Daniel 4. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. I want you to think about this. The most powerful man in the known world goes insane. God restores him. And out of that experience, he he stands up and says, I want you to understand that the God of heaven and earth, Yahweh, who the people of Judah worship, he is the God with power over all things. The God who humbles great men. The God who orders the armies of heaven. The God who cannot be stayed. And in the midst of all of this, the glory of God is spreading throughout the world. Beyond that, God is moving on the global stage. He's raising up the Persian Empire who will conquer 
Babylon in one night in one of the most amazing stories in all of military history. They will be established, ruling one of the largest empires in the world. Years later, the king of Persia, a man named Artaxerxes, will send Nehemiah back to rebuild the city and the wealth of Persia will be used to pay for it. And God is orchestrating things and no one expects it so that not only are the people returned home, they're returned home with protection and power and wealth of their captors to bless them. One of the most obvious stories of God's providence in the history of the Scriptures is the story of the birth of Jesus. You see, after the Persians, then came the Greeks and the Romans. The Roman Empire had expanded to encompass the entire known world. And at that moment in history, the entire known world spoke one language and had protected safe trade routes and roads and ships. So that when the gospel came, it came into a world with a common language so that everyone could hear and understand the good news. It came into a world that for the first time in human history, you could travel freely and safely from country to country, from people to people, across roads and ships. And in the midst of all of this empire building, a man named Caesar Augustus declares that there should be a census. That everyone should go back to their hometown to be counted. And in a small town called Nazareth, a man named Joseph, who no one in the world had ever heard of until then, and a woman named Mary from obscure families living in poverty have to take the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem because Joseph is of the line of David. And there she gives birth to a son. Now this is just an odd event. If it hadn't been for the reality that hundreds of years before, God had said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so the Roman emperor, unknown to him, is a tool in the hand of God, moving the family to where the Christ would be born. All of this happening, and no one sees it. God's just moving. And this is why I think that understanding the promise of Jeremiah 29.11 is incredibly important. Because in it, God says, I know the plans I have for you. It doesn't say, you know the plans I have for you. God says, I know. But we know Him. So we don't have to know His plan. See, we don't know the plan He has for us, but He does. What we know is that He is good and He is mighty. We know that we can trust Him, and we know that we can experience blessing and rejoicing even in the midst of difficulty because He's good. And this is where I feel like God has richly blessed the church in giving us this time of communion, in giving us this time of remembrance. Because in that, we're forced to look back at the reality that He is good and that He is mighty. See, when we celebrate this, it isn't just because we decided that every religion needed a ceremony and this would be ours. God gave us a gift. And the gift is is found in this word remembrance. Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed, take this bread, which is my body, and eat it. It is broken for you. And afterwards, he took the cup and blessed it and said, drink of this cup. The new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. 
And each time you eat this bread and drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. And then the Apostle Paul would tell us that each time we partake of the bread and the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Embedded in this entire story is the remembrance that God is good, that He sent His Son to die for us, that God is great, that He raised Him from the dead, and that He can be trusted when He says He's coming back for us. And so He says, from every day until then, I want you to remember what I've done. I want you to remember that I've got you. So that when the days of struggle come, when the exile and the longing for a home is deep and the ache hurts, you'll remember. You'll remember that I'm good. You'll remember that you can trust me. And you don't have to know the plan. You just need to know me. I want to ask the gentleman that will be helping with the elements to come forward. As we're not overly concerned with the ceremony and procedure here, what we're concerned with is that you take a moment to reflect upon your relationship with God. That you take a moment to remember His goodness to you. So you'll receive the bread and and then the cup. We'd ask you to hold them and just to pray. And when you're ready, to partake. Let's ask God's blessing on this time. Father God, we thank You that You are a God of great grace and mercy to us that You are with us and You are good to us, even in hardship. We thank You that while we don't know what is coming for us, we know that You are good and all things work for good to those who love You. And so we trust You today. We trust You to be good to us because You always have been. And we thank You that You have consistently reminded us of of Your goodness in sending Your Son Jesus to die for us and of Your greatness and power in raising Him from the dead. And our hope is found in that. Our hope is found in victory over death because You are both good and great. Lord, I pray that as we come to this table that that remembrance would overflow into faith and trust. In Jesus' name, Amen.